Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. This is one of the many talks in the archives of the Society recorded over nearly two decades from 1973 until 1980 and now available for you through the Society's website. Today we're listening to Captain J. A. Robertson who in 1975 was commanding officer of HMAS Stalwart. His talk is entitled Gallipoli and Sea Power, and it's an in-depth study of that historic and still controversial campaign and the lessons that could have been learnt. The history of sea power and the lessons which can be derived from that study are of supreme relevance to Australia, and so far as I can see will go on being relevant so long as this country remains an island, and I'm perfectly well aware of the advent of missiles and nuclear power, and I take that all into account. From my observations, I believe that what Alfred Mahan said of America in the 1890s is true of Australia today. The eyes of the country have been turned from the sea for over a quarter of a century. But in Australia's case, I believe it's probably nearer to 60 years. Your activity should make a healthy and significant contribution to the education of Australia and the realities of sea power. My problem concerning tonight's talk was to select a subject from the vast range of naval history and one to which you'd not been overexposed, or failing that, to deal with it in some way which would put it in a new light perhaps for some of you. Since the uh, month of April has just passed, and this year is the 60th anniversary of Anzac Day, I checked with Lou Lind, and he advised me it would be all right to talk about Gallipoli. But as he's very conveniently out of the country, I realise that if I've chosen wrongly, I'll have to take your wrath all on my own. It's a truism that Gallipoli is a significant if not the most significant event in Australian defence history in the public mind. Certainly for anyone who's grown up here over the past 60 years, it has stood out as the major event. Alan Moorhead's excellent book on this campaign grew out of his own fascination with the subject from his early childhood. And I suppose that experience was common to all or most of us. The memory of it's kept fresh each day, each year with Anzac Day. In more recent years, of course, Anzac Day and so much of what it stands for has served as a focus for some, especially younger people, to attack certain qualities it represents. To use a hackneyed cliche, it helps define the generation gap in this country. Alan Seymour's play, The One Day of the Year, made it generally known, I think, for the first time that there were a number of younger people who disliked thought of the whole business. But whether we wholeheartedly support the idea of Anzac Day or we passionately attack it, my point is that 
Australians, whatever their persuasion, are all well aware of it. It's undoubtedly one of the major influences on our Australian culture today. What I do find surprising is the lack of cool appraisal of the campaign to discover the lessons we might have learned. Like all historical events, its origins are not simple. There's no one specific point at which it began. For convenience, let me assume that we can take the Boer War as a beginning. And the reason I choose it is this. One of the results of that war was to persuade the British government that there was something drastically wrong with the organisation of the British Army. As a result, in 1905, the British Army's general staff was formed and the whole structure of the British Army's manning was revised with an army reserve organised on a territorial basis and called, naturally enough, the Territorial Army. There was no similar development in the Royal Navy, which still had the Sea Lords, but no naval staff. It wasn't until Churchill, not you, Peter, <laughs> got to the Admiralty in 1911 that the naval staff was instituted. Out of this, I draw three factors which had a bearing on the events which led to Gallipoli. Firstly, an army general staff with some years of experience. Secondly, no naval staff, so that all operations and planning particularly war planning, remained the prerogative of the first sea lord. And thirdly, a well-prepared plan for raising a British territorial army. You'll all know as well or better than I do that in this pre-1914 period, two of the first sea lords were the redoubtable Jackie Fisher and Admiral Arthur Wilson. You also know quite well that Fisher altered the face of every navy in the world by introducing the dreadnought. But he was also prone to make cryptic remarks, which some described as aphorisms. For example, the army is a projectile to be fired by the navy. But it also appears that he didn't flesh out these skeleton ideas to make more positive plans for consideration. One of his young critics, a naval officer, said this of him. Fisher, supreme in his contempt for history and distrustful of all other men, generalises about war, saying it is to be made terrible. The enemy is to be hit hard and often, and many other aphorisms. These are not difficult to frame, but a logical and scientific system of war is another matter. Admiral Wilson and the newly formed naval staff after, 1800, after 1911 appear to have been no more positive than Fisher had been. Europe was drifting into World War I from at least 1905 and nations were kept busy preparing for it with a kind of fascinated fatalism. Even though the British Army had been reorganised so as to best use, quote, 
the surprise and freedom of movement which are preeminently the weapons of the army of a power that commands the sea, unquote. Even though Fisher had addressed the Committee of Imperial Defence in 1909 in these terms, quote, Continental armies being what they are, the British army should be absolutely restricted to sudden descents on the coast, the recovery of Heligoland, and the garrisoning of Antwerp. There was a stretch of 10 miles of hard sand 90 miles from Berlin, where the British army to seize and entrench that strip, a million Germans would find occupation. But to dispatch British troops to the main front would be an act of suicidal idiocy." Unquote. Even though these factors were part of the discussion, that went on in Britain and between Britain and France from 1905 onwards, it was decided that the new large British army would go to France to fight as a continental army. This was the plan outlined by General Henry Wilson, the Chief of the General Staff, the Committee of Imperial Defence in August 1911. The Admiralty had no positive alternative to offer. Quite clearly, it hadn't done its homework properly. Haldane, the Secretary of State for War, threatened Prime Minister Asquith that he would resign unless the Admiralty cooperated fully with the Army plan. And General Wilson observed that if the, German, the Germans overran France, a British landing on the coast would be useless and the Navy would not be worth, quote, 500 bayonets, unquote, to the Allied cause. The events of 1940 later proved the shallowness of Wilson's arguments, but there can be little doubt they had an influence at the time. It would be wrong to give the impression that the Army was simply trying to outdo the Navy. It's just possible that had the Admiralty been better prepared, an amphibious assault plan could have been adopted. But I think I've only said that to be fair. After all, the battle between the two strategic concepts, the Continental School and the Blue Water School, had been raging in Britain for 300 years. In the event, it was no contest. And as little heart was to comment later, Britain, quote, seized the glittering sword of continental manufacture. I couldn't resist that phrase. I think it's beautiful. Made a subsidiary weapon out of the Navy and abandoned the experience of centuries of what he called the British way of warfare. The results were disastrous. Once the war began, the battle in Europe quickly settled down to trench warfare in an almost static front which extended 350 miles from the North Sea to the Swiss Alps. In all of 1915, the British and French did not gain more than three miles at any one point. Twelve months, three miles. The deaths were appalling. The French alone lost nearly a million men 
in the first five months of the war. Makes our 400 in Vietnam look a bit silly, doesn't it? Alan Moorhead puts it this way. The vast killing match in France overwhelmed them all. It was so terrible that it seemed it must soon provide some results. Somehow, if only sufficient men were got to the front, if they charged just once more against the machine gun bullets and the barbed wire, they were bound to get through. To kill Germans, that was the thing, to go on killing them until there were no more left and then to advance into Germany itself. As an aside here, I found the way the United States used body counts as a measure of military success in Vietnam chillingly reminiscent of this 1914 view. But in 1914 it was all too terrible and something had to be done. In December of that year, Lieutenant Colonel Hankey, the Secretary of the Committee of Imperial Defence, produced a paper suggesting a flanking movement, perhaps through Turkey and the Balkans. The British and French generals were firmly opposed to it. Not a man could be spared from the killing grounds in Western Europe for such an adventure. Kitchener, who enjoyed the greatest influence with the government, supported the generals initially, but after a message from the British ambassador in Petrograd saying that a demonstration against Turkey was needed, to ease the pressure on the Russians, he discussed the idea with Churchill and Fisher. Fisher was, of course, by now back at the Admiralty. And Churchill, as we all know, took it up enthusiastically. And so apparently did Fisher. Though that's arguable. But it, at, at all events, later Fisher cooled, and this led to the break between these two remarkable men. It was in this sort of half-hearted way that a plan for the landing at Gallipoli began to be formulated. But, as before the war, proper staff planning appears to have been almost non-existent. One result was that in February 1915, the Anglo-French fleet telegraphed the Allies' intentions by bombarding the Dardanelles ports. Perhaps not all the blame can be laid at the Admiralty's door. Since the British War, War Council, which authorised these actions, was described as follows. It is impossible to read the minutes of the War Council's proceedings without being struck by the atmosphere of vagueness and want of precision which seems to have characterised the decisions. How can a fleet take a peninsula? And how could it have Constantinople as its objective? If this meant, as it apparently did, that the fleet should capture and <coughs> occupy the city, then it was absurd. Nevertheless, in all this vagueness, a plan for the landing was developed, and since men were not to be spared from the front in France, an Australian division as part of the Anzac Corps, together with British Marines, or more accurately, naval infantry, Indians and French colonial troops, about 80,000 in all, were committed to the assault on the 25th of April 1915. By then, of course, the Turks had been alerted to this possibility because of the naval activities two months earlier. 
All of you will know, as well or better than I do, the details of this short and bloody campaign. After the initial beachhead was captured, the opposing forces became stalemated and it settled down to trench warfare. As in Western Europe, more men were thrown in. Nearly half a million, 480,000. By December of 1915, it was regarded as hopeless. And at a cost of 252,000 casualties, the peninsula was abandoned to the Turks. Australia's losses alone in eight months had been 8,500 killed and nearly 19,500 wounded. I don't know what the population of Australia was in those days, about three million people. It has been described as the worst British defeat between Saratoga and Singapore, and it joins a depressingly long line of spectacularly bad military fiascos. Dr Miller, in his book Australia's Defence, describes the campaign as follows. The initial landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915, a desperate and gallant struggle up a deep hill under heavy under up a steep hill under heavy fire, was the first feat of arms by Australian soldiers in the war. It was by no means the last, and many bloody battles took greater toll of life, were more successful, and contributed more to the winning of the war. Yet Gallipoli much more than the sinking of the Emden, marked Australia's coming of age as a nation. She had demonstrated in international company to the world and to herself the courage and determination and the ability of her fighting men, every one of whom was a volunteer. I don't know how you feel about Gallipoli, but that comment by a man I regard as probably the nation's most respected commentator on defence matters, pretty accurately sums up what I think Australia has been left with as the heritage of Anzac. It all boils down to the mystique, the nation coming of age, I'm not quite sure what that means, the gallantry, courage and determination of the Australian soldier, and by implication, the nation's standing for military ability. But at the appalling cost of 8,500 dead and 20,000 casualties, I don't think that's enough for the nation to be satisfied with. I do not wish to detract from the importance of mystiques and noble traditions. It should surely go without saying that I believe they are essential. But to be content merely with that is not enough for me. I believe we owe more to the memory of our dead, to ourselves in the present, and to our children in the future, than to sweep under the carpet all the lessons we ought to have learnt. The young nation had paid very dearly for this experience, and I believe it's still paying for it today. Stephen Roskell the British naval historian, is quite scathing in his comments. He says of the campaign, there was a lack of strategic direction by the home authorities. 
and of careful and coordinated inter-service planning. The failure to establish a sound command structure for the execution of the undertaking. Inadequate preparation for the transport of men and equipment by sea. Irresolute leadership by the naval and military commanders on the spot. And lastly, lack of training in the difficult and hazardous task of carrying out an assault from the sea. The possibility of achieving surprise at the first attempt was sacrificed when the decision to try to force the Straits with warships only was taken. And when the Suvla landing did achieve surprise, it was the failure of the military commanders to seize the opportunity which caused the loss of all its benefits. I think that's a pretty fair mouthful to chew on. I haven't studied the Anzio campaign, but I think we did the same at Anzio landed at Anzio, didn't take the heights, and four months later we got out of the beachhead. You'd think we might have learnt. For me, Gallipoli is one of the great might-have-beens of history. It was the only strategic idea of any merit to come out of World War I. That's a nice piece of polemic for you. And I might say I liked it because it was based on sea power. Had it succeeded, it could have prevented years of the killing match in Western Europe. It would probably have prevented Russia's withdrawal from the war. It's even conceivable that it might have prevented the Russian Revolution. The 1914-18 war saw the beginning of the decline of the British public's faith in its navy, which is now reduced to a very limited capability. Britain today has become even more enamoured of the glittering sword of continental manufacture and has a garrison force permanently in Europe. For Britain, what Professor Michael Howard has described as the continental dilemma has been solved apparently forever. If you think I'm being unduly hard on Britain or unduly biased as a naval officer, let me bolster my position by a quote from that admittedly controversial historian A.J.P. Taylor. The First World War shattered all the great powers involved, with the exception of the United States, which took virtually no part in it. Maybe they were foolish to go on trying to be great powers afterwards. Now, even preparations for such a war threaten to ruin the great powers which attempt them. Nor is this new. In the 18th century, Frederick the Great led Prussia to the point of collapse in the effort to be a great power. The Napoleonic Wars brought France down from her high estate in Europe and she never recovered her greatness. This is an odd and inescapable dilemma. Though the object of being a great power is to be able to fight a great war, the only way of remaining a great power is not to fight one or to fight it on a limited scale. This was the secret of Great Britain's greatness, so long as she stuck to naval warfare and did not try to become a military power on the continental pattern. How little strategic insight was gained in the long armistice between 1918 and 1939 is exemplified by the fact that when Germany, Britain and France came back for round two, in 1939, 
Britain proceeded as she had done in 1914 and again sent an expeditionary force to France. It was only the sharp success of the German army throwing Britain out of another entanglement in a long land battle in Europe which restored Britain to the freedom of a strategy based on sea power. Little wonder that for this and other reasons Hitler has been called Britain's greatest naval ally. Britain, it seems, had learnt remarkably little from her experience in World War I. So little that in 1939 the British Amphibious Warfare School was closed because there was not going to be any more amphibious warfare, or so it was believed. Australia wasn't in much of a position to be critical, for we too behaved as if nothing really had been learnt from World War I's experiences. We went on warming ourselves by the reflected glory of the Anzacs, content to let the important lessons we could have learned pass us by. And I believe we're hardly any more clear-eyed about it today. There were some who profited. The United States Marine Corps studied the Gallipoli campaign in great detail to develop the amphibious techniques which all the Allies eventually used in World War II. And the United States also produced at least one general, General MacArthur, who, while I'm not unaware of some of his less desirable characteristics, did understand very completely how to fire an army like a projectile from the sea. Jackie Fisher would have loved it. He showed this in the Pacific and later in the Korean Wars and with very conspicuous success. I might say he also advised the United States never to become engaged in a major land war in Asia, advice which that country later disregarded to its great cost. From my recent experience in Canberra, it's fair to say that the Australian Army in 1975 only regards the sea as a means of logistic support and of no tactical significance, while the Air Force at the official level merely regards it as a variation of the land warfare problem. How little do such people understand? I'm pleased to say at the squadron working level here, crews are much more realistic about the different nature of the medium. But I'm a bit gloomy because I believe the Russell Hill decisions are the ones which will count. But we're back the same sort of unresolved discussions about the defence of Australia that the country went through in the 1930s, and the same arguments get trotted out. Each sectional interest pushing its own barrow, convinced of its own infallible solution, while that new factor, the systems analyst, makes his own subjective judgments and dresses them up in a kind of scientific jargon to offer plausible and apparently mathematically precise solutions to complex problems. I'm reminded here of an article about systems analysts which begins on these lines. You are, an you are a systems analyst in a country almost totally surrounded by hostile countries allied to each other. Together their armies are at least five times greater than yours their air forces and navies are three to four times greater than yours. Clearly, your only advice to your government is to surrender. You cannot win. 
this is the situation which Israel faced before the Six Day War. My concern is that while I believe systems analysis can be a valuable aid to decision making, it has an alarming tendency to become the, the total decision making process. But that's an aside. To resume, how familiar does this sound? The possibility of aggression in the area did give rise to considerable anxiety about Australia's defences. Many feared that it was dangerous to rely too much on Allied aid, for in an emergency that might be, might be committed elsewhere. Therefore, it was argued, Australia should rely more on her own efforts, and in particular should develop her air force at the expense of the Navy a policy which gained much support from isolationist sentiment and from the air-minded. Others, while assuming that assistance would be sent, urged the increase of land defences to resist an armed invasion until help arrived. This school included the leading spokesman of the army. But in fact, none of these policies were fully developed. This is the punchline. A sense of isolation together with the desire for low taxation and increased social services combined to check defence spending. Australians were unwilling, it seems, to undertake the responsibility for defending themselves. That's from A.G.L. Shaw's The Story of Australia. I've changed it just slightly, but I think it can be set up today. There's another side issue. It's a fact that for the past 10 years we've spent about 4,339 million on the army, 3,446 million on the air force and 2,745 million on the navy. From this I think it might be fairly deduced that the defence of this island is based essentially on a continental outlook. Since well over two-thirds and nearly three-quarters of what we allocate to defence has been devoted to our land warfare capability. The German philosopher Hegel said this, what experience and history teach is this, that people and governments have never learnt anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Hegel, like all philosophers, was essentially a gloomy man and I don't believe he's entirely right. Mahan's work later in the 19th century taught the US how to learn from naval history. But it can't be denied that there's a large measure of truth in his assertion. And certainly as far as Australia is concerned, I am utterly convinced that we've been all too ready to embrace only the emotional aspects of our heritage rather than learn by any patient analysis of the past events which have helped to shape our present. To quote Mahan again, a vague feeling of contempt for the past, supposed to be obsolete, combines with a natural indolence to blind men for those permanent strategic lessons which lie close to the surface of naval history. I think that cap fits this very well here in Australia in 1975. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe your Naval Historical Society has a great role to play in shaking us out of our indolence and our self-indulgence where our history is concerned. And in case there are any lingering doubts 
let me make it quite clear that I am not at all opposed to mystiques or noble traditions. On the contrary, I believe in them and the need for them without the slightest reservation. But I think our history and the price the nation has paid for it has more to offer us than just a warm glow of misty remembrance. Thank you again for inviting me here tonight and thank you for the patience with which you've listened. I wish the Naval Historical Society continued and growing success. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, then you should use our website. You'll find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, and a range of e-books, monographs, and ship's plans for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website home page. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member, or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time.